putting God's forgiveness into doubt is one of the enemy's most common attacks. I've been there, wondering if I'm truly forgiven or what sins can and can't be forgiven. It provokes a roller coaster of emotional ups and downs. Thankfully, God has since revealed some truths about his forgiveness that have set me free and shut the devil up. And I'm here to share them with you. This is the Shut Up Devil Show, and I am Kyle Winkler, broadcasting live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Central at kylewinkler.org live. Join us live sometime, will you? If you're tuning in on the podcast, please don't forget to tap that subscribe or follow button so that you never miss a show. By the way, we're here because of the generosity of those who give. If you're one of them, thank you. We receive messages every day because of what you help us to do. I love this note from John on YouTube. He says, Thanks to God's grace through this ministry, he is starting to change my thinking on things the enemy has used to severely hinder my life. John goes on to say, The Lord has really removed so much of the condemnation that the enemy has assaulted my mind with for years. Well, thank you, John, for sharing that. If you have a story that you'd like to share, please let me know. Contact me through my website at kylewinkler.org or send me a message on one of my social media channels. And of course, if you'd like to help us receive more stories like this, please, will you consider making a tax-deductible gift of support at kylewinkler.org. Okay, on to the message. I was born again at age 16. And when I say born again, I hope you know what that means. That's the moment when I place my faith in Jesus, when I realized my dependency on him in a very personal way. Now, I grew up Catholic, very Catholic, so I always believed in Jesus. I don't ever remember a time not believing in him. But at 16, I came to know him in a personal way and made a personal decision of faith. Well, Jesus said that that decision results in being born again of the Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Apostle Paul said that it results in being made new. And As we go through this message and this series that we're beginning with this message, you'll understand more about this process and why Paul described it that way. The next few years or so after my salvation was really a mountaintop season for me. Don't get me wrong, it wasn't all easy. My very religious family found my newfound faith threatening to the old family tradition, so my household during high school was a bit tenuous at times because of it. And part of that is probably because I couldn't shut up about it, sometimes in the worst ways. I was passionate. I mean, I suddenly had new desires, a new interest, and a growing boldness and hope. And I wanted everyone to experience what I did, which sometimes meant I tried to shove it down their throats. Maybe some of you can relate. But while what was going on with my family was tough, the difficulties couldn't dim what was going on inside of me. But as time went on, and I kind of settled into the Christian life, I began to feel as if I wasn't so new anymore because my introverted personality that I hated at the time 
I desperately wanted to get a different personality, thought that that's what God wanted of me. Well, it wasn't changing. I was still being triggered by old insecurities more often than I care to admit. I expected that in time, everything about my flesh and emotions would be perfected. And after 10 years or so in the faith and still being very imperfect, I really started to get worried that maybe something was permanently wrong with me. Maybe I wasn't as good with God as I hoped I was. Maybe he changed his mind about me. Maybe he didn't love me anymore. These were worries that I feared at the time I was the only one having. But I've since found that these worries are extremely common among Christians, unfortunately. I'll tell you, the bulk of the message I get have to do with some vice or struggle or difficulty in somebody's life that's causing them to fear that maybe they aren't really a Christian, maybe they aren't really brand new, maybe God is mad at them. I heard one person say that 30 years ago, they came down to some altar to accept Jesus singing, Just As I Am. And there they were 30 years later, feeling just as they were. And for those of you who are too young to know, Just As I Am was the altar call song made popular by the Billy Graham Crusades. If you're too young to know who Billy Graham is, Google him. Anyway, the gospel message is that God invites us all, regardless of who we are, what we are, where we are, to come as we are, just as I am. But the gospel message also promises that when you place your faith in Jesus, you will not remain who you were. You will become a new person instantly. Here's the thing, though. What happens in that moment of your faith is not a physical work. Your eye color doesn't change. Your personality doesn't change. The way God made you definitely doesn't change. Even some of the ways that the world has affected you physically don't change. They might in time. They might not. The change that happens first and foremost has to do with your spirit. Your spirit is what God is most interested in. Your flesh dies and decays someday. But the Bible describes your spirit as the real you that lives on forever. So the new you is really about what happens spiritually. The problem is most people don't know this. I didn't. I thought all of this flesh needs to feel brand new too. And if it doesn't, then I thought I've got to discipline it and try to fix it enough until it is. And if that still doesn't work, then uh-oh, maybe I have a problem. Cue the mind games. Cue the depression and the anxiety and just about every other negative emotion you can think of. I'm telling you, not knowing or trusting what happened to you at your salvation is at the root of so much of the junk that you deal with in your mind and in your behaviors. Take it from someone who knows. That's why I wrote my book, Shut Up Devil, Silencing the Ten Lies Behind Every Battle You Face. And that's why this message begins a series of messages exploring what God did in you 
the moment you placed your faith in Jesus. Much of it is going to be about what he gave you. But first, you have to know what he took away from you. I'll start by getting everybody on the same page with some foundational stuff. The first truth is the most obvious one that I could say. I hope it's obvious to you. We are human. That means we are capable of mistakes. We are imperfect. You didn't have a choice in the matter either. Your imperfect nature was passed down to you from ancestor to ancestor to ancestor, all the way back to the beginning, back to Adam and Eve. Maybe you've heard it called a sin nature. The gist is Adam and Eve committed the first sin. That act infected them and the entire creation in a way that perpetuates in person after person after person after person. That's why what we live in is called a fallen world. In Romans 5.12, the Apostle Paul put it this way. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. A couple chapters later, Romans 7, Paul said that our humanity makes us slaves to sin. To the Ephesians, he said that everyone starts off following the passionate desires and inclinations of their sinful nature. Ephesians 2.13. Now, for a while after Adam and Eve sinned, God didn't really hold people personally accountable for sin. And by that I mean he didn't require them to make up for it in any way. And if you continue reading after Romans 5.12, verse 13, Paul says this. He says, yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not any law yet to break. So yes, sin existed, but they didn't know it was sin because there was nothing that told them that was sin, so they couldn't pay for it until the law detailed what sin is. And so this law that Paul speaks of there is the law of Moses, given to God by Moses, beginning with the Ten Commandments. And there are 613 laws in total that make up the law of Moses. Basically, as sin got out of control, the law was God's temporary means to deal with it. It served to expose sin. In part, it helped preserve his people to keep them from destroying themselves. But mostly, the law was meant to prove people's need for God. It was to create this impossible standard that nobody could meet, which is why it had even some of the strangest things in it. It affected every single person to show that every single person cannot meet this standard in order to show they can't do it themselves, they need God. That's really a different message. But among many things the law spelled out, it spelled out how people could be forgiven and put at peace with God for their failures, their sins, their imperfections, whether accidental or deliberate. So if you read through the Bible, especially the end of Exodus, 
through the death of Jesus in the Gospels. This is how you see people relating to God. They see themselves as sinners in the hands of an angry God. And to temporarily appease him, they had to offer sacrifices dictated by that law. There were many kinds of sacrifices for different things, but when it came to the forgiveness of sin, the law required the bloodshed of an animal. You can read all about this in Leviticus, if you'd like, starting in chapter 4. But here's the basics. Daily animal sacrifices of bulls, sheep, and goats could be made in the temple for the forgiveness of sins. People could do this every single day if they wanted. It was going on every day. But for people to do that, it would have been expensive. Because, you know, if you're sacrificing for your sin every single day, you're going to eventually run out of your own animals if you have them. So you're going to have to buy animals. And so that became, in time, a very lucrative market buying animals for sacrifice. So really, only people with means would have had the luxury of sacrificing so much in order to feel at peace with God as often as every day. Most people had to wait until the annual event that the law prescribed, which is called the Day of Atonement. On this day, a high priest made an offering of two spotless goats. One goat was sacrificed, its blood was shed for the forgiveness of the sins of Israel. Over the other goat, high priest would confess the sins of Israel, speak them over it, then let it out, sent it out into the wilderness as a symbol of sin being removed, taken away from God's people. That's why it's called the scapegoat. In those days, forgiveness was very transactional and very temporary because not long after a sacrifice was made, they were guilty again. The sin nature just can't help but do what it does, sometimes accidentally, sometimes deliberately, but always requiring a fresh cleansing. That's why I often think of this kind of transactional case-by-case forgiveness or cleansing, like taking Lysol to a countertop. I know that might sound like a strange illustration, but I don't know about you. It seems that no matter how hard I try, I can't keep my countertops clean for long. They just keep getting dirty right after I've cleaned them. It's a constant process of rinse and repeat that is exhausting if you want to keep them clean. I guess another good example would be keeping my car clean. Seems like a car wash is the best rain dance that I can do. I wash it and then sure enough it rains and gets dirty again. Maybe that's because I live in Florida. I don't know. But when it comes to dealing with sin, none of us are dragging bulls, sheep, and goats to a temple to sacrifice anymore, thankfully. Yet we still sin. And every human is still born with the sin nature. So what changed? Well, the prophecies of the Old Testament came true. That's what. God dealt with sin himself by sending Jesus. That's what. And Jesus did it in two ways, really. Culturally and personally. Let me explain the cultural aspect first. Maybe you've heard that Jesus is called the Lamb of God. 
That's because what he did on the cross represents the kind of forgiveness, the bloodshed that came from the sacrifice of bull, sheep, and goats. Well, in John 1.29, his cousin, John the Baptist, referred to Jesus saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's causing people to call to mind that scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.19 affirmed that that is what happened on the cross. He said, For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. What both John and Paul illustrate here is that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was the final day of atonement, the last one ever needed. It was the great day when God put not just the sins of Israel on his lamb, but this time the sins of the entire world on his lamb, so that the world's sins at a cultural or a broad level would be forgiven, taken away, no longer provoking God's anger and requiring sacrifice. Hebrews 9.28, in case you need some more scriptures to prove this, it says that Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. Hebrews 10.12 says that Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice, single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. No other sacrifice can do, and this one lasts forever. This is why today, no more sacrifices have to be made to keep God happy. Not with animals, not with your time, talent, or treasure either. It's done. God's not angry. This is also why we cannot say that natural disasters and tragedies and disease and the like are acts of God. Oh, I hear this still so much, especially living here in Florida during hurricane season. So many people and preachers like to blame it all on God's mad at the nation or he's mad at a certain people group. So he's punishing us with this disaster. No, that just isn't true. Jesus was the final scapegoat who took away the sin of the world. Now, that doesn't mean everybody in the world is saved. It just means that people personally no longer have to make sacrifices for their sins in order to keep God happy and avoid his wrath on the earth. Speaking of personal. It's the personal aspect of Jesus' sacrifice where God really did something new that relates to your identity. Through Jesus, God not only offered forgiveness of sins of the past or sins one at a time in a transactional kind of way, but he ended the burden of the cycle of sin, then ask for forgiveness, sin, then sacrifice for forgiveness, sin, then ask, sin, then sacrifice. Because really, in that kind of a system where sin requires you to do something, whether that's ask or confess or do a penance or a sacrifice of some sort, what happens in between a sin, like a lustful thought, 
and when you ask for forgiveness. I mean, what happens between the time you say your morning or evening prayers and the next time that you say them? Because guaranteed you've done something wrong in between that time, whether it's an hour or 24 hours or more. In that kind of a system, in order to be perpetually at peace with God, you'd have to live constantly locked in your room doing nothing but asking God to forgive you. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me, Lord. And I promise you, you'd probably get bored and you'd probably get frustrated and you'd sin in some way even in that amount of time doing it. So it's impossible. And that's not what God wants you to do anyway. That's not why he brought you onto this earth is so that you lock yourself in a room consistently asking for forgiveness. No, he wants you to live in the joy of your salvation. Live in it. Jesus made it so that you don't have to worry about this stuff. And let me show you. Colossians 2, 11. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision. There's that word spiritual again. Here's what it means. The cutting away of your sinful nature. Hear this. When you placed your faith in Jesus, that thing in you that you were born with, which separated you from God and made you to sin, whether you wanted to or not, your sin nature was cut out of you. Was it managed? It can't be managed. God's not asking you to manage it. It was cut out of you because it had to be. That's the only thing that works. And it seems to me that this was a little hard for Paul's audience to understand. I mean, it's still hard for us to understand some 2,000 years later with all the theology and books we've had written. It's still difficult to grasp, I guess because it seems too good to be true. But that is the gospel. So Paul spelled it out in one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Colossians 2, 13 through 14, and this is often kind of a spiritual warfare passage. And that's because it is what shuts the devil up. Look at this. Paul says, You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. He's talking about before salvation there. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away. There's that phrase, took it away again, scapegoat, took it away by nailing it to the cross. There's so much to this. But let me make this personal to you. When you placed your faith in Jesus, your sin nature was removed. And once it's gone, it's gone forever. It can't grow back. That means the wall of separation between God and you is gone. You are forever reconciled with him. As Paul said, it also means that all your sins were forgiven and the charges against you were removed, taken away so that you are forever at peace with God. It means that, yeah, though you still sin at times, those sins don't stick to you requiring a fresh cleansing every time. It means that Though you still sin at times, you are no longer defined as a sinner. This is why I'm so adamant about Christians not using that phrase, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Yes, you are saved by grace. Praise God. 
But upon that salvation, that thing in you that defined you as a sinner was cut out of you. I know that might seem to some like I'm just tripping up over a definition of words, but the heart of the gospel message is at stake in this because the gospel is not just about forgiveness of sin, but it's about an exchanged identity. It's not about you being a forgiven sinner. The gospel message about you being permanently cleansed so that you are considered brand new and made right, complete in Christ. That's why it's a better covenant with better promises. It's like your car staying clean despite the rain. It's like your countertop staying clean despite the batter, the grease, or the dust. It's like despite wrong memories, you are a right person. Despite wrong symptoms, you are a right person. Despite wrong feelings, you are a right person. It's like Christ writes you despite you, which is a miracle, which is why it's spiritual and something you can't produce or do in the flesh. This is God's work. You are God's work. God had to do it, and he did it. Romans 3.22, we were made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.11, you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Belief, faith, that's what did it. Here's a verse I love, but is so often confused. 1 John 1, 9, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. This verse here says the same thing as all the others I've been going through. It says exactly what I've been sharing throughout this entire message. Yet many people preach it in isolation of the context of the New Testament and they put people back in this weird place of mixture of Old and New Testament by doing so. And nothing but confusion and insecurity come from this mixture, which is why Paul advised Timothy to rightly divide the word, separate it between the covenants. People use 1 John 1.9 to say, see, the Bible commands us to continuously confess our sins case by case, in order for them to be forgiven. Well, if that were the case, this would be the only verse in the New Testament to say that. But as I said, in light of the context of the New Testament, we know that can't be the case. And in light of the context of John's letter, we know it can't be the case either. John was responding there to a very dangerous movement at the time in Christianity called Gnosticism which among many false teachings, Gnosticism taught that sin didn't exist. So here, John responding to that idea is saying, yes, sin exists, but the solution isn't denial. It's confession. If you confess it, confess you're a sinner. At the moment of your salvation, you're forgiven of it. All of it, as he says. Not case-by-case forgiveness. That's not what this is talking about. He's talking about the forgiveness that happens at the moment of salvation. Forgiven and cleansed completely and forever. That old sin nature, all wickedness, gone. Good news. 
Now, I know that a couple questions arise from this. I can read some of your thoughts. Not really, but two questions always come up whenever I preach about this. First question is, if my sin nature was cut out, then why do I still sin? Good question. The answer comes down to an unrenewed mind. Stinking thinking, in other words. The world has programmed you to think in certain ways. Things you have experienced wired your brain in certain ways. Culture, biology, the fallen nature of things wired your brain in certain ways. The enemy works in your mind in ways too. He can't read your thoughts, but he plants thoughts. And your mind controls your flesh. It is the control center for the rest of your body. Thoughts are really what's behind your emotions and fleshly reactions, your habits, your behaviors. That's why Paul says we are transformed by the renewal of the mind. I explore much more about that in my Mastering Your Mind chapter of my Shut Up Devil book. But what you need to know right now is that while sin might be around you, it might be on you, it might even be in you, it is not you. Your real self, your spiritual self, is made new and made right in Christ. The second question I get is if you tell people that they are forgiven forever, won't they just be encouraged to sin and 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 sin? How people talk about this. Won't that give them a license to sin? Won't sin just run amok? Well, I know that might seem logical and it makes sense to the human mind that if you give people promise of forgiveness, that they're just going to go out and do whatever they want to do. But God's ways are not our ways. He doesn't think like we do. In 1 Corinthians 15, 56, Paul says that it's actually law that empowers sin. See, we think it's law that keeps us good. If we just follow the rules, then we're going to stay good with God. When in fact, Paul said, no, that's not how it works. The more law you have, actually, the more you fail. It makes you weaker, not stronger. What is the only thing that helps, he said in Romans 5.20, is grace. He says grace is the antidote to sin. In 2 Peter 1.9, the Apostle Peter said, we sin when we forget our cleansing. So remember your cleansing. Remember your forgiveness. In other words, remember who you are. Plus, there's what I call a psychology of forgiveness which comes from the way God designed us. It's this. When you know there is grace for mistakes, then you do better. You don't do perfectly. That's impossible. But you do better. And that's because the pressure is off. We all know that. We all do better when there's no pressure. We think better, think clearer. In any case, be assured. When you placed your faith in Jesus, your sin nature was cut out of you and you were forever forgiven. Forever. But rest assured, trusting that won't make you want to go out and sin more and more and more and more and more. 
Quite the opposite, actually. And that's because, as I said, at your salvation, God didn't only forgive you, but he put some new things inside of you. And that's where we'll pick up in the next message of this series. Until then, let me share how I can help you on this subject of identity. I have a four-part teaching series titled, You Aren't Your Feelings, Fears, or Failures. This series addresses why these common vices of life do not define you. As the title suggests, I devote a message to each one of them. Feelings, fears, failures. And the last message then is about how to stand in your new identity in Christ and use that as a form of spiritual warfare against the enemy's lies. I like to call it identity-based warfare. It's the only thing that works. This four-part series is available to download and listen to instantly when you purchase it through my website at kylewinkler.org slash you aren't. That's kylewinkler.org slash you aren't. Okay, that does it for the Shut Up Devil Show. Remember, God is good and he is for you and we're here for you too. Every week on my website at kylewinkler.org, on our podcast and wherever you get your social media. And don't forget, wherever you're watching or listening, tap that subscribe or follow button so that you never miss a show. And I'll see you right here next time.